Hello and welcome back to another episode of Clear Minds Unfiltered. Thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited about this episode. We are continuing our series, Being Black in America, and we're going to take a corporate perspective in this episode. Joining me is my friend, my brother, and an, and an experienced person, black man in the corporate world. He'll tell you a little bit about himself, but before we get into that, I just want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast anywhere you're listening to podcasts, as well as don't forget to follow Clear Minds on Facebook, Instagram, and Instagram. And you can follow Clear Minds at Clear Minds Counseling, Consulting, and Training. This podcast will be available. Uh, you're already listening to it. So hey, there we go. The podcast is available. Uh, the video will become available shortly. Uh, so just stay, stay on the lookout for that. Anyway, welcome, Marcus. Hello, Marcella. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm so excited to have you here. You know, we've been talking about this for a while. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you are my inspiration, right, for doing the podcast. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know why you did it. You already know your sister talks so much and has so much to say, uh, but you did do it. You unleashed um, a monster here, and I can't get enough of this platform. Uh, so, of course, it's only fitting to have you here in, on this platform. Well, you know, I think the unscripted, uh, organic, conversationalists are the best at podcasting. And, you know, you, you don't need a script to speak. And you said it. You have a lot to say. And, and more than just say, people have a lot that they really need to hear. And I think you can bring it to them. So I'm glad that you are up and running. Thank you. I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited to have you here. I'm not sure if you've gotten a chance to um, listen to them, but for a while I've been doing a series um, uh, called Being Black in America. So to date, I have interviewed um, a young black man and talked about his experience um, as an immigrant, as a young person uh, in America. Then I interviewed a group of black women and talked to them about their experiences in various different aspects um, most of them work in the helping profession. And then I actually interviewed our father uh, for the seasoned perspective. And I learned a lot of things there. So I think this is going to be a great little book into his um, video because he was my last being Black in America coming into your video. So uh, just tell the people a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, I first have to ask, was dad, did dad get to prepare? No, not really. Um, you know, he, but he did so good. He, <laughs> he always comes with history lessons, right? Oh. So that was very interesting. We did do like a little pre-planning, like what you and I are doing, you and I did earlier. Um, I didn't give him any questions. He wanted questions, you know, but I didn't want to give him space to like write a sermon. Exactly. That's why I asked because I, I figured that I was thinking like, I, I know Pop can just talk, but at the right. same time, like I'm used to him. I'm used to hearing him speak uh, with, with fine attention to detail. So, yes. Uh, so who so am good. I? My name is Marcus Roll II, um, although I just refer to myself as Marcus Roll. Uh, you know, dad and I are far enough apart where I don't have to identify that I'm I'm second, but very, very proud to be named after dad. I think we have a strong, we both have strong names. 
I'm currently um, a manager with Uber Corporate, uh, Uber Technologies, specifically in the Uber Eats division. Uh, I manage a team of 10 account managers. We have about a $36 million valuation book of business that we oversee. And the times have been interesting uh, most recently, just because while business is booming for, for us here at Uber Eats, we're watching, we're watching a lot of restaurant owners, restaurant partners, and a lot of people just without, within the country and the world um, really struggle. So it's, it's really been a struggle, but at the same time, um, just a new viewpoint on, on priorities and focus for me in the past year. But prior to joining Uber, I worked for a te technological, uh, technology real estate company uh, named Redfin based out of Seattle. I wore a couple of hats there. I managed a team of our top producing real estate agents on the listing side, and I also helped build um, our support organization from the ground up. Um, and so that was you know, about a seven year career in real estate, um, still licensed, so still doing referrals on the side. But before that, worked for a restaurant group for about seven years as a front of the house manager um, and you know, wore a few hats there, but really is where I got started in my career of, of being in, in leadership, started early on, um, obviously when I didn't know what the difference between a leader and a manager was, but that's progressed beautifully, I think, uh, you know, and I think this, in this in this space of of management and leadership today uh you know people are really being challenged to to reflect on their approach and how they how they work uh on the people development side of things you know it's it's it can be taught people can be taught to organically you know manage numbers and manage two numbers but at the end of the day people leave because of people for the most part statistics show so for me, it's really just always daily reflections. I, I always want to remind myself that I'm in a position where people are, are looking to be led um, and want to be led. And, and I have to continue to make sure that I'm in the right mind, mind frame, uh, mindset and, and frame of mind to, to, to deliver. So that's a little bit about me. Married, yeah. live in the suburbs of Chicago now. <laughs> I've been in Chicago almost 15 years, two-year-old daughter named Evie. Right. Um, yeah. Jazz. Love basketball, golf. Yeah. So you're just like a, a nice mixture. And I, a couple of things kind of popped out as you were talking. One of them we're going to get into because I'm going to, I want you to walk us through your journey. And I say that because while we are siblings, we approach life very differently. I think we've, we've started to sync up a bit in our later years, but yeah. I'm sort of, you know, I'm a planner. I kind of have you know, an idea in my head, you have been so um, spontaneous in your journey. Like you tend to go wherever opportunity leads you. But it, to me, it always blows my mind how, how you got here. So I'm excited about you telling everybody that journey. And then the other thread that I think um, has tied, tied in everything you said is just this idea of really understanding who you are as a leader. Because here's the thing. Tony and Marcus, who are our parents, they've just birthed three leaders. I think because I'm probably the most talkative one, it came across that I was like the main leader, but really at, at the heart of it, it was impossible to have them as parents and not come into the fruition of who we are as leaders. So I'm really excited about you talking about how you identify as a leader and even what that, how your cultural um, background and how that identity ties into that. But um, so those are the two things that kind of popped out at, at me because I think sometimes when people see both of us, they gravitate towards me 
um, as a leader, you've taught me so much about what that means and even how to get there and even exploring that. I really came to understand that I'm an authentic leader by you kind of putting me into this space, being like, you know, there are different types of leaders, transformational leaders and all this stuff. And I'm like, what? I don't know. So I'm really excited to hear how you um, came to that as well. But let's start with what we're talking about here. How did you go from um, working as a server at Wildfire in Atlanta? And we, we could go back further than that. How did you go yeah. from stocking groceries at Food Lion in Ashland City, Tennessee, to now being a manager um, at one of the biggest corporations um, in the world in Chicago, Illinois? Well, I'll say, you know, on the, on the outside looking in, it looks like it was um, a lot of reacting, but a lot of it all the way up until Uber was part of a plan, believe it or not. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, starting with Starting with Food Lion, you know, I knew then that I had good work ethic. Uh, it, it certainly was not on display while I was bagging groceries or stocking frozen product, but I knew that I wanted to do the work and I wanted to learn from who I thought did the work the best visually. Yeah. Uh, so from that point, you know, look, I, I went to college, you know, I was all about music. I wanted to get to understand the, the music business side of things, the business side of music industry, uh, really get into um, partnering with, you know, in my mind, I wanted to be somewhat of an agent or somewhat of a producer on the back end working with artists. Uh, but, you, you know, I, I didn't. I, I didn't do well in school. I, I wasn't really having fun um, and towards a, the end of my college career. Uh, or, or I wasn't having fun with the school part of it. I, you know, I really, I really jumped into uh, the people aspect of meeting so many wonderful people throughout my college career that I decided mm -hmm. that I decided that I didn't want to continue to waste time. And I thought I was wasting time because I wasn't giving college my best effort um, the way you're supposed to do college, right? Like right. you're supposed to be on time for class and be on time for assignments and be on time. And, and really show effort and like follow through and make sure that I'm on time with selecting classes. I wasn't really good at that. Like I just, I, I didn't prioritize it, uh, but I knew in my head that I wanted to do something with music and I wanted to do something with business. So I just got right to work. Um, I, you know, left school and went and, and, and did what I thought I needed to do, which was understand the restaurant industry. My whole plan at that time was I wanted to open a jazz lounge, jazz lounge coffee. Right, I remember that. Oh I, Marky, I got to tell you, I was just doing some digging and I just actually found my original blueprint and business plan that I wrote in 2005. Oh my gosh. First of all, I remember us talking about this at TSU. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God! I actually talked to Dad about this, and Dad gave me the advice that I that stuck with me for like 15 years or or longer. He basically said, "Well, you want to get in the restaurant industry, you need to you want to get in the, the the business industry, you need to understand how to manage a business. You you want to get into the music industry with business, you need to understand how they work together." So I just got into the restaurant industry with every intention of becoming a manager. Mm -hmm. um, just because I looked, I got into the industry and I look, I sized the managers up, you know, 20 year, 22 year old kid, you know, size it up for as much as I could size up, but thought I could do this. Okay. Um, let's take a pause right yeah. there. Yeah. What, what did those managers look like though? Did they look like you yeah. and how did you so, decide you were going to be welcome in that space? Well, so for me, they did not look like me. 
And I, I had already, I had already grown comfort with accepting the fact that um, I didn't need them to look like me to be inspired. I, I wanted to do what I, I wanted to, I felt that with hard work and with me really remaining persistent <clears throat> and being uh, well uh, understanding of what I wanted to accomplish to the level of competency that I needed to be, mm -hmm. that I could do it. I, I just didn't think twice about it ever. And I did because I thought I left school early, like I don't have this piece of paper to say I accomplished these things. But what I did think was I will have a proven track record that is established by me. Um, so that's what I set out to accomplish, a proven track record. I learned that phrase um, early on, you need to have a proven track record. And so I thought I could create a proven track record. So that's what that's where I went. The, the, the managers in the restaurant, they were all white. There were no other, there were no black staff. Um, and I thought I was the best just simply because when I think about what it takes to be good presence in a restaurant, it's how comfortable you make people feel. And it's how you look, how you carry yourself, your energy, how you speak, um, and, and your punctuality to, to really create, try to create a good experience. And I picked up those key things and that was, that was me every single day. I would show up to the restaurant extremely polished, ready to go. I knew the menu. I knew I was proactive with questions. Um, I gave great, great descriptions and I was extremely punctual with service. Uh, I understood what, what pain points were for people in restaurants very quickly. And I adapted and make, made sure that that was never an issue, you know, in, in my little atmosphere within the restaurant that I could control. Where so, did you get that confidence? Let's just take a pause because yeah. what you just described is very well-developed self-awareness to a yeah. place where you were almost self-actualized at a young age. And when I say that, I mean, like, you are aware of your strengths and weaknesses. You are aware that you are aware that they both work together to make you um, the unique uh, token, or not token, but the no, no, the unique tool, the unique uh, opportunity that you were to other people, and you were walking with that everywhere you went. It sounds to me like the only issue that you thought about ever was the education thing, never your race or your ethnicity. Right. Where did you get that level of confidence from? You know, I think before confidence, it was ignorance. Mm, I think, I think that's a powerful statement. Yeah. I, I think before confidence, it was me purposefully ignoring what I needed to really, what I should have, or maybe in hindsight, should have or would have um, tried to identify a little bit more. So for me, it was never, but I'm black. That mm -hmm. thought was never a, a thought for me because I, I just rushed past it. Because But I'm Black was a part of my life from the very beginning. And, and I saw it, I knew it, um, I addressed it in some cases, I dealt with it in some cases, I hurt over it in some cases, but I knew that the best feeling of them all was to quickly move beyond it and, and determine what I wanted to accomplish and work on that. Dang, that's good. Okay, do you regret doing that? So, <clears throat> yes and no. I say yes, I regret because I um, I look back on some of the places that I lived and some of the people that I came in contact with, family members, not family members, 
and that looked up to me and I didn't have a lot of substance to provide in terms of the topic of who I am, where I'm going, what we need to do, like things we can focus on, some truths, unveiling some truths that, that have been, you know, myths for years. Um, <clears throat> but then no, because I think that there were some other things that I picked up that were extremely productive uh, in my character along the way. So I, I think that because I decided that I wanted to really just focus on what I want to accomplish and the how, mm -hmm. um, the what, uh, I just kind of left behind. Um, so, yeah. you know, but I look back, I look back on some of our cousins and some of the people that I came in contact with, I think that, you know, somebody needed to have some wisdom. You know, like when you look back on all the people that I were around in my early 20s, late teens, early 20s, it was like, who's, who's the wise one? Who is everyone looking up to and who can we really aspire to be? And outside of my father, there was no one. Um, and, yeah. and, and I, even in college, like there were people that looked up to me just because of my background. Right. But I didn't capitalize on really trying to cement those friendships because for me, it was, okay, each day that went by, I knew that like, I didn't, I was thinking, I was feeling that maybe college isn't for me right now. Like mm -hmm. I, was, I had that feeling and nobody else had that feeling. So I was dealing with that. So therefore other things that may have come into my head that, that I should you know, capitalize on just, just kind of fell down the priority list. Okay. Let me just take a breath and take all that in. You said such a mouthful. And I say that because every single time I do one of these, this is the, the reason why I'm doing this is because I want everybody to understand every black person's journey is different. My brother and I grew up in the exact same house. And because of the videos that you've seen from me, y'all all know I wore my hurt right here, everywhere, all the time. And I took that everywhere I went. Yeah. He grew up in the same city in this, with the same students, with the same parents, only a year behind me. And he did something else with the oppression that happened to him. That's why these stories are so important. So, okay, go ahead. So you got into this wildfire industry. You were like, okay, I know I can do the job. So it sounds to me that even if your confidence came from ignorance or arrogance, it got you in the door and yeah. you were able to do the job. So yeah. then what? So I let the general manager know day one that I wanted to be a manager within the next year. Day one. And I asked him, I said, what are the physical things that I can do day to day on top of my job that would get me there? <clears throat> and it kind of threw him off. But he basically said, you know, if you just work hard, if you can like lend a hand around the restaurant and like just show that you have great vision mm -hmm. of what's going on in the restaurant, I think that's one of the best traits. And that stuck with me, vision. And not just vis vision in the moment, but vision, overarching vision of what you really want to accomplish with the business. Mm -hmm. That is really what, where I started to think. So I, I just buckled down. I put my head down and it was go time. And I just, every single day I showed up, I, I watched the managers and watched what they did and which, you know, try to, you know, check in with people. What do you need? What do you need here? And realize that working in the restaurant industry is really just about controlled chaos and yeah. you need to be able to move and move around and, and make sure that there's a, there's a good feeling, a good energy coming from you. Uh, but I was promoted within 10 months, asked to move to Chicago 
and I didn't hesitate. <clears throat> I knew that, okay, I'm going to go to Chicago. I'm going to at least give it five years. I'm going to manage this restaurant. It's the number one restaurant brand in the Midwest. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity. I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to gain as much knowledge as I need to, to, to be able to open up a business. The idea was still that I'm going to open up. I'm going to find some capital. I'm, I'm going to open up a jazz lounge. That was the plan. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I got to Chicago and it was just, it was unreal. I mean. So, yeah, yeah. Talk about that juxtaposition between the Midwest and the South. Oh, yeah. Um, for, especially as a black man as well. Go ahead. It's certainly not parallel and just, it is a juxtaposition, just like you said. Uh, it's contrast. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you go from really standing out as a black guy, but like not standing out is really like threatening because I learned how to have posture that I thought was um, welcoming. Right. I learned how to relax my face in a way that was welcoming to my to my knowledge. I, I, I have the ability to speak clearly and articulate well. And so I thought that those three things were just like, oh, I won't be, you know, I, people won't look at me as a threat or yeah. to be afraid of because I'm practicing these things consciously. Um, but I get to Chicago and I really just soak in all of the architecture, the space, the um, the intentional uh, diversity and the intentional segregation. Um, I, I think that it is unbelievable how we can very specifically have a city um, that is that is intentionally segregated, but it not be it, it be within the Constitution. It's 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 really really mind boggling to me even still to yeah. this. And I've I've I'm learning more and more just about how they call it. They call it the, they call it the, um, they call it white flight is what they call it. When, when the white people move from the South side to the suburbs and to the North side, mm -hmm. but the, the journey there, the first six to nine months there was, it was cold uh, when I got there the first three months, but you know, it was really just all about taking in those big things, going to a Cubs game, going to a Bears game, going to a Bulls game, going down Michigan Avenue, the lakefront um, and, and really just, just jumping right, jumping right in and, and yeah. just opening it all in and just saying, remember, I would always say to myself, Marcus, you got to have a little bit of discipline. And I would just say that, you know, I'm 20, I don't even know, 23, 24, mm -hmm. maybe I moved here. And, you know, you got to have some discipline, like at the very least, you got to get to the bed at a decent hour and you got to get up and be ready at work. And you got to be in a great mind frame at work. The only way you're going to have great energy is to, you know, to, to get some sleep and to and to and to try to exude good energy, Put, position yourself um, in, in an atmosphere and atmospheres and around people that can can help produce that good energy. So it was just from the jump. I had a lot of fun, but you know, working in the restaurant industry, you learn a lot about people and you learn a lot about how people want to be led, uh, people don't want to be led. Um, but it was it was really great. You know, I knew that that career was going to come to an end at some point. For me, ideally, I was going to just save up bonus money and put a down payment on some corporate building and start a jazz lounge. But it didn't turn out that way. I started to think that, okay, I want to own some property at some point. So I need to understand the real estate market. I need yeah. to know what's, I need to know how you buy and sell property. I need to know what the laws are. I need to know what the market, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah. I need to know what the market value in certain neighborhoods are. And I need to know how to capitalize on uh, on investment. So 
I got a real estate license. I, I had met someone that was in the industry that came into the restaurant often and we just started talking. Um, and so I, I made the transition from the restaurant industry to the real estate industry uh, within like six months. Uh, and it's also when I met Abby, my now wife. Uh, at pause. The okay, pause, pause. Because you, you've been going faster than me. Sorry, I got to go sorry. back. I want to go back. Because you said okay. two things. I don't even think you know how powerful they were. You said when you moved to the Midwest, there was intentional segregation. And this is key. Intentional diversity. Yes. I think sometimes that and I will, I can say that I have been, I've been privy to this type of thinking that I think, okay, if I just get out of the South and, and I'll just be around people that look like me, but there is something to be said about intentionally dropping people into places so that we can say we're diverse. The same racist and oppressive mindset. Like yeah. that is real to the yeah. point that we now we now define diversity as an intentional action to bring together multiple cultures. But right. it's inclusion and belonging when you design a world where those multiple cultures feel safe, right? And feel appreciated. Right. So again, so essentially it wasn't a huge difference except for there was just intentional an intentional choice to, to group a whole lot of different people together. Right. Yes. Right. And you know, I don't know the origin of when certain people came to Chicago. I, mm -hmm. I, know, I know some stories here and there, but what I do know is a lot of, a lot of international money is invested in Chicago. Chicago would not be as developed as advanced as it is without the acceptance uh, of, of, of other. Right. If you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. The mm. money comes from being able to check the other box, which um, fortunately and oddly, that sort of spread throughout this other states as well. It, right. it, it probably started, you know, in the northern states, and that, but it's kind of spread down here a lot because a lot of our money is tied to how diverse we are. Right. So, so you, but you peep that like going into the scene. How did you know that there was still oppression and there was still racism? Well, <clears throat> you know, great question. You know, uh, you could literally drive down the lakefront. There is literally a street that separates um, where the predominantly, predominantly black neighborhood from the predominantly white neighborhood. And I, you know, historical, historical Hyde Park, Barack Obama just become president. I wanted to check out Hyde Park. I, so I drove down south to the south side and, you know, was just checking it out. And, you know, Hyde Park is gorgeous. And, you know, a lot of the south side has gorgeous infrastructure, gorgeous mm -hmm. architecture. But it's underfunded and it's under-resourced. And, you, you know, you drive, you drive there, you look, it feels like you're in another country, let alone city. Wow. And you see, you just see, you know, the, the, the reason why it looks so different is because once there started, once it started to become infiltrated with black people, and once there started to become um, more crime and more issues between both black, white, and Hispanics, they started to just demolish the areas and demolish the buildings. Instead of trying to uproot the problem and face the problem head on, they would just knock a building down if they know that there were drugs being sold in. 
And so you drive on the south side and you're driving on roads and it's just blank. It's just open fields. And then you'll see like some houses and then you'll see other. It's all because systemically the yes. city would just would just get rid of areas. They would just demolish yeah. the area and hope the problem would go away. That's so interesting. That's actually a new concept <clears throat> I've been learning and teaching about called structural trauma. So there are all these different types of trauma um, that are associated with how we survive in the world. You know, there's like, um, there's historical trauma, um, all these, all these different types, but structural trauma is just this very idea that what you remembered structurally in your community now is like either defaced, um, fallen apart or absolutely gone with nobody paying any attention to it. So then you create an entire community that's reeling off the effects of this type of structural trauma, it's automatically going to heighten um, different things such as crime. It's going to heighten uh, poverty. It's going to heighten um, racism mm -hmm. and oppression because we're not dealing with the fact that you've caused structural trauma without a plan to address it. Can you imagine? And, and I didn't say, I didn't mention this, but this is, we're talking about a train ride to and from the north and south side. Mm -hmm. So you can hop on the red line on the south side of Chicago and ride it all the way up into the most prime neighborhood in Chicago, Lincoln Park, all white neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine a kid, 13 year old kid, you know, knowing a park or an area that they used to go and play in? Yeah, there may have been some, some, you know, some juvenile activity, but they demolish it, they flatten it. He gets on a train ride, goes up to Lincoln Park. There's also an area that is not that great, but instead they upgrade it. Mm -hmm. They bring in new supplies, new materials that would tell that kid that they don't care about you. Right. No one cares about you. And in fact, if there's a problem, they step on it like it's an ant instead of spraying bug infectant or, yeah. or whatever you call it. Like you, you, you kill one ant, you can, you can bet your butt there is a million more ants right behind them. Exactly. So you got to treat, you got to treat the actual issue at the root instead of trying to, to just flatten it. I agree. So here you are, you're in real estate now. Yeah. And, and, and as you're telling the story, I can see while wow, I can just, I can see how you went through this thought process. Your, but your thinking is so quick. It's crazy. I have to like deliberate. <laughs> you're just moving. So, so now you're in real estate um, and yeah. you're kind of getting a larger view of the city. Um, how, how was that for you? Because that's, that, that was a corporate, well, honestly, you were in a corporate position with the restaurant, but you really moved there with your realtors and then subsequently your broker's license. Right. What's that like? You know, it was really interesting. It was, you know, I experienced, I did experience some prejudice. Um, it, it, you know, in real estate, you, if you're not from here, you, you're, it's all about how you are acquiring clientele. Mm. And this is a very, very demanding. There are about 10,000 real estate agents in Chicago. So if you can imagine that footprint that people are trying to cover, everyone wants their little segment. Right. So for me, it was just a lot of you, you call, I'm there, I'm going to meet you. People didn't want to necessarily work with um, me on the front end, a black guy in, in Lincoln Park and then in, in, you know, North side of Chicago, they wanted to see, they wanted to work with the guy whose name was plastered on billboards in spite of the fact that you'd never meet him. And here I am in front of you and here to be your advocate. It just wasn't the feeling of comfort for most people. And I quickly learned that people want to work with 
uh, people in real estate, when they want to buy, buy a property or sell their property, they want to work with someone that, that vis visibly they, they can trust, not mm -hmm. necessarily based on their, their work or their ethics. Uh, they want to be able to look at someone and feel comfortable with how they look. Uh, it's a very real thing. Um, but I had success, you know, I, I started off with, with just working independent with an independent broker, uh, as a contractor. And then I moved to Redfin as an employee, a corporate employee and worked with building the support team and building the, the, um, the president's club agent team, which was quite reward, quite rewarding. Um, I, I, I really got to see, um, you know, what really goes into, uh, increasing market value for, for properties and just how how the behaviors work because at the end of the yeah. day we can define <clears throat> we can define what we think a property is worth but market value is only defined by what people are willing to pay so right that was a that was a, a nice lesson to learn and also continue to teach uh but it was a really good experience that was about seven years long as well and it sounds like another lesson that you learned is that it didn't matter how much you worked on being non-threatening you still showed up black yeah 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 yeah, yeah. This city, the north side of this city is um, it's still very much prejudice. Uh, they, they still very much have biased lenses um, in the way they look at black people and brown people um, simply because of how easy it is for them to define what black people and brown people are based on what they see collectively uh, on the south side of Chicago or on the west side of Chicago. So that definition just carries across. Yeah, and you know, let's let's even open that up a bit because you know you're definitely not trying to say that, and I know you're not trying to say this, but I want to be clear: you're not trying to say that living on the south side of Chicago means that you're a threat. Exactly. We are saying that we live in a world in the United States where we've made a conscious decision as a people to project people on the south side of Chicago as all it, takes, all it takes is one example for someone yes. to take a blanket definition. Yeah. One example, one experience, and that suddenly turns into a blanket definition of a group of people. Right. Right. I mean, it, it sounds preposterous when you say it, but it is what happens all the time. So that's why you, I do, and I'm sure you do too, that's why I get people looking at me with things like, well, but where are you from? Right. Because you can't be black and you can't be from the South because we know what all black people from the South sound and look like, and you're not it, therefore you can't be it. Right? Right. Because they're just living in this poisonous, disgusting, unheard of image because as a nation, that's how we portray um, black people. So here you are standing here, um, you could very well have been from the south side of Chicago, but you don't look, you know, it, it doesn't matter. None of that, nothing matters. The fact is, essentially, at the end of the day, we want somebody white. Right. So, um, so yeah, so you did that. You succeeded as you did with your other things. You found, I also think, you know, just knowing you as, as my brother, I think you also found a, a passion that you didn't expect to have when it comes to real estate which is kind of historical for our family we are a real estate family yeah. um, especially on my dad's side i think it was inevitable for you to get to this space so i love that full circle moment of being able to settle into that natural passion for you you know and it was really more than a passion for real estate it was a more it was more of a passion for advocacy mm. and that that is really where 
what kind of transitioned me into Uber. Uh, okay. just, then, then another full circle working directly with restaurant partners on our platform, you know, became, became visual. Yeah. Um, but, but working to help a client, you know, accomplish a goal mm -hmm. and, and, and working side by side with a tailored approach is, is ultimately what I'm most, most passionate about. And that's what I was able to reveal uh, working in the restaurant industry. I, yeah, that's amazing. You know, I'm all about, you know, I tell people all the time, um, be mindful of the fact that when I walk in the room, you're looking at an advocate. You're looking at a social justice yeah. fighter. So if you are on the other side, you should probably get out of the way because your feelings are, you know, your feelings yeah. are Because that's advocacy. That's not easy work, man. Right. That's not easy work. That truly is taking the less popular side of the approach there. That's really trying to, really thinking about not the commission, but rather I want to match you up with what's going to work for you, right? Work best for you. So I, I love that. So, okay, real estate. And how did we get from real estate to Uber? Well, so, you know, the Red Friend, the Red Friend Corp organization was really in a growing, a growing stage. Um, and I had actually went, I had moved roles. I was working in, with the support team, helped build that up. It was magical. And then I went, went to work for, went to work with agents, working with agents and helped mm -hmm. coach them up. Uber had always really been one of those companies that you look at, right? Uber, Amazon, Google, like for me being in the tech yeah. industry, I followed them. They all like to think alike with Silicon Valley, San Francisco based companies. Um, they have some things figured out in just in terms of technology, but they also have things figured out when it comes to human relations and human resources in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So it was really just a matter of, of, of looking at their availability and seeing that they had just created this new department in Uber Eats, where there was account management or client success division. And it was just a light bulb. It was like, listen, I have the leadership experience. I have the restaurant experience. Um, and if we're looking to acquire more restaurants on the platform, I know, I know the jargon and I can talk restaurant jargon. And if we're talking to restaurant corporate people, I'm the guy for the job. So the interview process was extremely comfortable. Um, I was very confident in, in, the, in my ability to help continue to shape the future vision of this department. And, and it, was, it was just a game changer moment. So it, it, was, it was nice to join this crew organically um, with, with my background being viewed as valuable instead of a background in client success. Mm -hmm. uh, or background in in in, in, um, in 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 any other background really. My background really consisted of just working with building people and building and and working within the restaurant to understand you know anything any and all that I could. So it was really it was really a, an easy decision for me once I saw that this role was available. Um, yeah. And so yeah, that was we're coming up on a year now here at Uber. Um, and it's been it's been a nice ride again again here building it's like a startup within a within an established organization our department is less than a year old um and you know we're building it as we go so to speak but at the same time the vision is very clear what we're trying to accomplish is very clear how we mm -hmm. get there is is what we're working out every single day and i, I like the i like the grit of that so you have a new division in uber a new leader over that division at Uber. First year, and during your first year, what do you guys experience? You experience 
um, a global pandemic, yeah. and then come the onslaught of dealing with race relations here in America. Yeah. How did you and how did Uber respond to that? And was it the best way, in your opinion? Like, talk to talk to me about that because these were two very significant uh, moments in our history. Yeah. So with the pandemic, I think we did what we had to do and, and literally just send everyone home. Everyone had to stay home. It was work from home. You know, obviously it was a shelter in place mandate, but work from home order was, was in place. And the thing that I liked that Uber did was we eliminated any stress, uh, as most stress. So by, by that, I mean, we wanted to make sure that everyone had a proper work from home setup. So everything was on the house. We basically needed to just submit what we needed to get, and we were able to accomplish accomplish that. So I think mm-hmm. I think it's really smart when an employer tries to eliminate the stress of having to make specific decisions so that we can lead to more productivity. Uh, and that was one of the big biggest moves they made. I think it was great. Um, and it, it, you know, we really tried to take a step back and realize that while we are a for profit organization, we still are in a in a prime position to help these businesses stay open. And, and thrive by way of our platform. So we shifted our focus a little bit to not be so sales heavy, but to be more advocates and to be more partners and, and to and to look look within and see what else we needed to do. What what do we need to polish in terms of our, our program and products to make a better experience for our partners to stay afloat and not really have to worry so much about things. So right. the, the pandemic really opened our eyes. We spent we, we, we started to sprint towards a, certain, a few initiatives to make sure that our platform was in the most optimized fashion for our partners so that we could they literally could just turn themselves on and get business that that mm-hmm. was our goal. You know, then enter the into the awareness of uh, racial disparities. You know, listen, this is this is one of those things that, you know, who's good at this, you know, like, who, who's good at dealing with this. You know, that's that's the question. You know, that's a very fair response to this. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to see how you unpack that. So right, we, go had, ahead. we had some great leaders in, in our day, Martin Luther King Jr. specifically, one of my favorites. But at the end of the day, we have to address what we have not addressed, and it's overall awareness of of the realities in, in which this country was built. Uh, the truths, specific truths, specific stories, um, things that have missing information. We have to just take a second and, and accept the fact that we missed a lot. We didn't address a lot. We didn't do things, obviously we didn't do things the right way with uh, you know, segregation and Jim Crow laws and all, all of those things. But even to, even to today, we have become comfortable with biased approach. Right. If Scott, if Scott from Harvard comes to my building in 1965 and he increases my sales by 60%, as a business owner, with the, if my name is Johnson and I have this business and other entities, I'm going to constantly be looking for a guy named Scott from Harvard because that's who I believe is going to be the guy to get it done. Therefore, when you go through the blue, building your company, you lose sight on any type of competency that could be displayed that could still help help the business but you're looking for Scott from Harvard or you're looking from Tom from, from Ohio state. You're not really looking outside to really think you're not clearing your lens. You have this very biased approach and we have this biased approach with, with black and brown people without a without question. We have this assumption that 
they have it, they have, they lack some skill or some ability or some privilege to be able to do the job at the same level as someone else that may have less than, but look a certain way. And I'd like to add that potentially, I think in many situations, people have become complacent because there's like, okay, we already met our quota. What else do you want? We we have 10 of y'all. We don't need 11. The government said we only had to hire 10. Right. Right. So we have that element as well. Yeah. And, you know, then you have, then you have this element of, of, um, you know, what I like to call uh, phony, phony gut checks where, mm-hmm. you know, people don't recognize that you shouldn't just go knock on the only black person's door, you know, and really expecting them to speak for black people. You know, no one else does that in any other culture or, or white people don't do that within their own culture. It's right. silly. It's silly. You know, you don't do it in your own culture or in the white culture because it's silly. You wouldn't ask another white person to speak on behalf. So dealing with a little bit of that, you know, but we, we, we quickly pivoted there, which I was happy to see because I, I really expected for people to suddenly come to me as the only black manager. At this time, I was the only black male in the entire department of 180. Mm. And I really expected for people to expect for me to have something to say. Uh, expect for me to make them feel better uh, about what they had to say. Um, while while I do think that people did have that expectation, I think that I'm seasoned enough to just remain stoic and and in those situations and speak less. Um, but it's interesting because I looked around, I reflected in the middle of the of the of the of the um, riots and the and the protests. I reflected and realized that, listen, I'm the only black male in this entire department. So my question to the director of HR was simply, what are we doing to ensure that our our internal uh, team directly reflects the markets in which we operate? Here we are, 15,000 restaurants on our platform. And you mean to tell me that one perspective and five perspectives is really gonna get it done for us to continue to develop and understand how we meet our clients where they are? So it really challenges this team to like look within and understand that we need to really be conscious of, of the recruiting process. Because this, the second question I asked was, do we recruit or do we respond? Because recruiting is a department, your title, your, your title is recruiter. By definition, that's a proactive responsibility, not a, re, a reactive responsibility. And I think we really get caught up in the technology of things like LinkedIn and Glassdoor. These are companies that are designed to bring us people. Therefore, we're not recruiting. We're screening. Mm. So yeah. we need to be recruiting. And while we before we start recruiting, we need to define what is it that we're actually looking for in the competency level, number one. Number two, how are you going to, def- you can't define that on your own. So you need to dig in and understand what the day-to-day is and what outside what what other competencies could we potentially look at that would that would that would potentially transfer well into this role think yeah. outside of the box here if you're really trying to in, in, inflict change you have to take a step back and, and, and look at what who you are as the person that with the opportunities yeah so conversations and you know I'm I was fortunate enough to be to have the platform to speak um, on this and to speak on you know our lack of recruiting and we, you know our position of just responding. Um, and I think that we really are, we're really trying to, we're, we're also trying to use technology with this, but we have this new tool that that reads our job descriptions, 
and 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 alerts us for any potentially biased words or words that would really target. oh yeah. that's really good yeah words that would potentially target a specific group of people and detour another group of people we're actually experimenting also with with removing resume re removing names from resumes when we give them to our the hiring managers to screen um, yeah we're really, we're really taking a different approach here because the the idea is a long-term win to expand the opportunities and expand the platform for people to think that there's opportunity versus looking at a job description and saying, oh, I don't have that, I don't have that, and automatically being rejected. So I'm gonna, it's gonna be interesting to hear, mm -hmm. to follow back up with you and to hear how those um, techniques are working. I will say I am very um, proud to hear that Uber listened to you and not only listened to you like, as a pacification, let me just pat you on the back, but then took it and, and they were proactive. I wonder if you had to, like, what were your thoughts when you went in? Because here, here's the thing. When we just go back to the beginning of our conversation, I can imagine this is not a conversation you would have had at Wildfire because you were very deliberate about being like, I'm not focusing on this, I'm focusing on success. Right. But here you are almost being forced to decide Am I going to be unapologetically black in this moment? And I'm going, am I going to say something that can ultimately shift the culture of this corporate space? And it sounds like you were, you, you just, you took that step. And you know, not only did I want to be unapologetically black, accountability, number one. That's good. We, we have to be held accountable in business. Yeah. And we, we want to sit back and, and say, oh, well, we, you know, we open our, you know, we are equal opportunity employer. We need to dig, you got to dig deeper. And I think the two biggest pieces were removing the biased lens and, and actually recruiting versus responding. You know, if, yeah. you want, if you really, if you really want to drive a diverse group of people to work within your organization so that you can have the strongest impact, you have to go out, you have to reach out, you have to branch out and you have to educate yourself um, on, on all of the different things that could potentially translate well into said roles. You know, yeah. as you see now, you see now it's it's more it's more trending where you know job descriptions are removing the college degree requirement. You know, that was one of the things for me that I always it always was it, it always was like right there front of mind for me. But then again I never let it stop me because I always thought if I get this interview, I'm getting this job. Yeah. And I didn't really have I didn't have to do it a whole lot. I've been fortunate to, to, to stay in certain careers for a nice period of time, but, but it, it's, it's one of those things where what, what, what does it, you know, in certain fields, does it really matter? That's yeah, I'm, I'm going to be honest in any, I must have to, I must say in many fields, in most fields, does it really matter? Right. Even academia, you know, I'm, I'm stepping my toe into academia here. And I recognize that some of the best professors are bringing their lived experiences, which is why you see schools like Harvard and um, the University of California, or whatever that is over there in California, they, they bring in celebrities um, to teach like in their music and their arts and their production yeah. departments, because it's the experience that's really getting, um, getting, um, students to understand and, and honestly the job descriptions have changed even for me so for instance 
yes, they want me to have certain degrees, but if I've not practiced counseling, then I'm not, they're not going to hire me. Right. As a, right. Because the reality of the situation is you're teaching your experience. We don't need you to read the book themselves. Right. right. But it's the experience. So I think you're, you're, you're right. But um, we've been talking almost an hour. <laughs> so uh -huh. let's put a bow on this. And if you could just sum up, um, what your experience has been like as a black man in corporate America and what you hope to add to that experience moving forward. My experience as a black man in corporate America, I, it's been very, it's been very obvious that I'm a black man in corporate America. Mm -hmm. It's not been that I'm just in corporate America. It's, there have been reminders. There have been um, situations that I don't think that if I were a white man in corporate America, I would have experienced. I will also say though, that it's really required me to look at the way I approach life and the way I handle myself from the time I wake up in the morning, from the time I go to bed. I wanna be responsible. I wanna be healthy. I wanna be intelligent. I wanna be a hard worker. I wanna have work, hard work ethic, but I know that every single day I have to wake up a few minutes before. I have to prepare myself a little bit more I have to do a little bit more. I have to say a little bit more. I have to prove a little bit more. Therefore, it's really, it's really primed me at 36 years old to be in a position that I'm very, I'm very much proud of. Um, I'm not proud of, uh, you know, the, the, the level of comfort and acceptance that is portrayed um, around the reminders of being black in corporate America, but I yeah. am, I am proud that I have, I have spoken up. I have said some things. I know that I've, I've made people um, look at black people differently because of their experience specifically with me. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. Um, but I, I know that I've come in contact with a lot of people that have not had much contact with black people in the specific roles. There were, you know, mm -hmm. there were people in the restaurant industry that hadn't seen a black man running a wildfire mm -hmm. or people in the real estate industry that hadn't seen a black guy leading a team at Redfin. There were people at Uber and hadn't seen a black manager in this department. Yeah. So it's it, it's been rewarding, but not so rewarding because it's just a constant reminder that um, being a black man in corporate America is is very much, um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's very much a thing. Like yeah. it's, it's I was just much, thinking that I was like, it's still a thing. Yeah, it's, so it's, it sounds to me, like you're looking forward to ultimately it not being a thing. You exactly. just get to show up exactly. and be at work. So, um, and I'm looking forward to that too, at least for our children, right? For your daughter right. um, to go be able to live into a, a world where it's not a thing. Um, but anyway, I just have to say, thank you so much for thank this. You. This has been, whoo, I always learn. <laughs> and I'm always so excited about that learning something. Um, I look forward to following up with you and I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very proud of you too. You're welcome. All right, folks, be sure to tune into our next episode of Clear Minds Unfiltered. Who knows, you may be the next guest on Clear Minds Unfiltered.